You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So if you remember last time, I'll do a small recap for us. We paused in the middle of chapter 11. We did the first six verses, I believe, and we're going to jump straight back in. I'll I'll recap those verses and then we'll finish chapter 11. And by way of a warning, chapter 11 is a pretty deep chapter. So we're going to look at some good, deep theology today. So I hope you've all got your brains on, you've had your coffee. If you're a visitor new jumping in at Revelation 11, I'm not going to apologize, but good luck. That's what we do. Now remember, where we are in the book of Revelation, we are in the midpoint of what we have termed the tribulation period. This is that time of distress that leads up to the kingdom age, at the end of the age that all of the prophets, Jesus and the apostles, all talk about frequently. John is giving us details about certain events that happen during this middle period. And I just, by way of reminder... The earth is completely different by this stage of the tribulation period. It is not really the earth as we know it in many ways. We've had all of those seal judgments. Much of the earth has already suffered under those things. Wars, calamities, famines, we've seen all of these things. We are now nearing the end of what is known as the trumpet judgments in chapter 11. We've seen the rise of this man called the man of lawlessness, the man of sin called the beast, this coming world political leader who will be very charismatic, who will have the answer to the world's problems, and he will deceive the world into following him. We have much more to say about him as we go through this book. But ultimately, we know the time is short. This period does not last particularly long. Now, these judgments have two primary purposes. There's more, but the two main ones that I want to focus on. One of them is ultimately to remove the beast, the power of Satan, those who dwell on the earth and who choose to follow him, Basically, the way we've been studying Revelation, if you remember, is that the earth is God's property. In Revelation 5, remember, we saw that title deed to the earth, that scroll, which was used in property transactions, and it was given to the Messiah, the lamb that was slain, and it is his earth. And the Father has now said to him, you go and redeem your earth from those who are usurping it. Squatters, basically, almost. Those who are following are not following the Lord at this period are standing against God and they are usurping the earth of which where he will set up his kingdom. Part of the process of this tribulation is basically an announcement the Lord is coming back to take his earth. That is one of the reasons. Another reason that is often missed out is that these judgments are used to bring the nation of Israel to repentance and prepare the world for the coming kingdom. Do you remember in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul said they rejected the Messiah and that brought blessings for the Gentiles because the gospel went out to the whole world. But what will happen when they accept the Messiah? That will be life. And what he means is that is when the kingdom will come. So we're going to start seeing that theme coming to its close as we draw to the mid-end section of this book. So let's jump back into the text of chapter 11. I'll read some of the verses as we just go over a little bit what we did last time. Then there was given me a measuring rod, like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So during this period, remember, we see the shift of focus towards Jerusalem, back to preparation for the final showdown, and this should not surprise us. Jerusalem was where the revolution began, It's where Jesus won the victory on the cross. It's where he spent his life. And ultimately, it'll be where he comes back to. 
So there it should not surprise us that this is again the focus in this world. Last time we talked about this idea of a temple. The text that we just read seems to talk about a temple again. And I argued that it is best to simply take the text as written. I explained that there are alternative views in the church. Some people do not like the idea of a concept of a temple again on this earth. And they try and argue that this is the temple of, of Herod's temple, the 70 AD temple. There's different views that take that. Some people say that it's just being used spiritually to speak of the church. The church is now the temple. There's a little bit of truth in that. The church is the temple. But this, is I'm arguing, is a period after the church has already been removed. And therefore, it should not surprise us that temples are there again. If you actually think about it, there has always been a temple. It's always been a feature throughout the whole narrative of God right back to, really, the Garden of Eden. It's, always, it's a place where God dwells with man. That's the idea of a temple, and that has changed throughout the course of history, but it has always been there, so it should not surprise us again that we have this. And if you remember, I did also argue that this is not a new idea invented by 19th century dispensationalists or people who are interested in prophecy. I read two quotes from early church fathers, Ignatius and Hippolytus, second and third century. Both of them argued that this is speaking of a future temple. So this is a very ancient view, goes back right to the early church. I believe it is the biblical view. Let's look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So here we are introduced, we, and this is all by way of recap, to these two new characters in the book known as the two witnesses, two characters of which there is much speculation and people go into great lengths to try and identify who they exactly are. I argued that that's not really the focus of the text. The focus of the text is upon their ministry. It is their role at this point. They're probably just two unknown, unknown prophets actually at this stage. But the text is referring us back, do you remember, to Zechariah, where we have the language of the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Again, that's where it comes from. And we saw that these two witnesses are to bring about a restoration of Israel. That's ultimately what they are there to do. That's one of their things. They are prophesying for 42 months or 1260 days, three and a half years of this final period of the earth. So that's where we're up to now, basically the middle point of the tri tribulation. And that is their role. So let's pick it up at verse 7. And this is all new, and we'll go into this in a bit more depth. It says, When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So now we see these two witnesses who have had supernatural protection from God during their ministry, and now their ministry seems to be done, and they are allowed to be killed. It's not quite done, though. There's actually testimony in their death, as we shall see. But notice that little phrase, and I like it. When they have finished their testimony, and we can apply this in many ways to our own life, what it's basically saying is when their ministry is done. You see, God is very much in control of those sorts of things. And this reminds us that for believers, it does not really matter 
where we are in the ages of life. If we are the Lord's, it is not over for us until he calls us home. We are his ambassadors, we have his calling, we have our mission. There is no retirement from serving him. As long as we have breath, we are his servants on this earth. A lovely phrase that the old 19th century preachers used to say is, until you graduate to glory, you're his and you're to serve him. Reminds me, verse, Psalm 146, verse 2, the psalmist says, I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. Psalm 63, verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. There's a famous chorus to an old hymn. As long as I have breath, I will praise you. As long as my heart beats, I will sing. As long as life flows in my veins, I will bless your name. And that's, I believe, the thought here of something we can take just from that little phrase. It's very easy, and you probably all know this, to forget what our purpose is right now. We, we all do it. We get caught up. Life is busy. It's intentionally designed to keep us busy. There are struggles. Sometimes getting through the day or the week or the month is quite a struggle on its own. And it's easy if we don't check ourselves to make us think that that is the entirety of our existence here and our purpose. But that is really not. That is maybe secondary. I'm not demeaning the things we go through in life, but it is not the totality of our existence. We must remember being a Christian is a serious thing. It's a wonderful thing, but it is a serious thing. It is all-consuming, and it is supposed to be, and if it is really the truth that we claim it to be, it should be nothing less than all-consuming. That is the point. It requires all of us to be laid at the feet of Christ. We are his, and sometimes we, we forget that, I think. Our future is secure, absolutely, amen, but our present is his. That is, that is the idea that I get from this text. Reminds me of the words of Paul. Remember his dramatic goodbye to the Ephesian elders? But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the purpose. I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And every single Christian can say those words in their own way, in the areas that God has put them in this world. So at this time... Back to Revelation. These two witnesses are killed. And it says, verse 7, that the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. Again, we see this character, the beast. And some people are, we're not quite sure who this beast is. I'm going to probably lean towards the view that this is speaking of the beast that we see in Revelation, the Antichrist. There are other beasts. Don't be thrown by the term beast. A lot of people get confused by that. Is this describing some horrific monster? It's very typical of apocalyptic writing to use these terms. They all have theological meaning. I will explain that to you in a moment. But remember, if this is speaking of this man that we have termed really the Antichrist, this world leader, he is basically the counterfeit Messiah. Think of it more in those terms. This is God's, Satan's final attempt to have his kingdom on earth. So just like God has his king, Messiah, Satan, I want mine. And he's got to have his own temple. He's got to have his own worshippers. This is exactly what we see going on here. It is the ultimate counterfeit. And, and you see this playing out in the world in many ways, especially if you're looking forward in these times. He is the one who will, you, who will unite the world. And a lot of people will see that as we go through the end of Revelation. But the beast, I believe, is to be contrasted with the lamb. And this is why these, all these words have meaning. The beast and the lamb. The lamb is the saviour of sinners, the beast is the persecutor of the saints. 
And you see that theme developed through this book. Now, there's some very Hebraic undertones that people miss here of the, the importance of these terms. The idea is those trusting in the lamb are correct because to the Jewish mind, a lamb, an unblemished lamb, as it was slain, so to speak, meant that it had passed the test and it was acceptable for sacrifice. Therefore, it could be trusted. But the beast, if you read the Levitical laws, beasts were considered to be unclean. And therefore, those trusting in the beast are wrong. And that is the, that is the whole background narrative to these terms that we see being developed through the book of Revelation. But now the beast is having his final say here. What he thinks will end in glory for him, we know better. But at this stage, we're going to see it play out. So the beast is able now to kill these two witnesses. Now, he obviously thinks that's a great victory for him, but we know we just read the text. God did not allow that to happen until their testimony had been finished. Verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Again, interpreters really get confused about this text because the word mystical there and the, 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 the term Egypt and Sodom and simply for the fact that some people just do not like to admit that this is talking about Jerusalem because of different replacement views in the church. But again, don't get confused by that. Just read the text, take it as written. It's very clearly identified for us as Jerusalem. A Sunday school child, if you said, where was Jesus crucified? He could answer that question, probably if they're in a church that teaches that. He was crucified in Jerusalem. But, so that's the idea there. But let's talk about this. I mean, this phrase mystically is called Sodom in Egypt. That is a little unusual because those of us who do acknowledge a purpose for Israel, sometimes we fall into the trap of romanticizing everything to do with Israel. Like Jerusalem is some sort of amazingly holy city right now. We must make sure we don't do that. We don't lift up Jewishness for the sake of Jewishness at all. What we're actually lifting up is God's covenantal faithfulness. That's the whole point of this, this, these whole issues. And it tells us very clearly here, Jerusalem at this stage is spiritually related to Sodom and Egypt. And those two things are particular. They have been, the author uses them for a region. If you remember Old Testament history here, Sodom was exceedingly wicked and it was judged by God for gross immorality. Both of these two places, Sodom and Egypt, are places where God supernaturally intervened in history with judgment. That's the reason why, because what we're reading now in Revelation is once again God supernaturally intervening with dramatic judgments, you see? That's why, that's why he's listed these two places. Egypt, of course, was the nation that actually enslaved the Jews. And if you remember, when they came out of Egypt, they were immediately involved in the idolatry of the golden calf. So you have all of these themes going on that I believe is teaching us about the state of Israel at this time. Jerusalem has likened these places to emphasize the godless state at this time, immorality and opposition to God and idolatry, except this time it's not a golden calf, this time it's the beast. Because if you remember, they worship the beast. They worship the Antichrist, as will the whole world, will follow after this man. He will be that sort of a leader. And again, this is not new for Revelation. Often people will read Revelation and they just won't understand what it's talking about. This sort of language is just so common in the Old Testament prophets. Look at the, we've just been studying this a few weeks back, Isaiah, the beginning of the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah is bringing his prophecies to an apostate, well, to a soon-to-be apostate nation of Israel, he uses the same language. Isaiah 1, he says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. You see, he makes that same connection. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
Isaiah 3 verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. Same as what we're seeing now in the tribulation. The expression of their faces bears witness against them. They display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. So this, this identification, again, it's not new for Revelation. It's, it's just what the Old Testament prophets did. And we shouldn't be surprised now because we're studying these two people called the two witnesses which are pro who are prophets. They have a very similar ministry to the Old Testament prophets to bring the nation to repentance, bring them back to the Lord. And we will see that happening as we go through. So this is what we have now. Now play it through. We'll go back to Isaiah's day. What happened when the Lord sent prophets to his people saying, please stop going after the king of Assyria, stop breaking my law, please follow me. What happened? Even in Jesus' day, he tells the parable, doesn't he? I kept sending you prophets, and finally I said, I'll send you my son. Him you'll listen to, and what did they do every time? They killed the prophets. So what we're seeing here now in Revelation is exactly the same as what apostate Israel always did. They killed the prophets that God sent to them to warn them. So again, Revelation is not this really mystical new book. This is again very similar to what we're seeing all the prophets deal with in the Old Testament here, but this time it's the final period of history. The two witnesses, the two prophets are killed just like the prophets of old often were when they were calling the nation back to repentance. So we do know though that these two witnesses seem to have a ministry in Jerusalem around this temple area and we know that they were protected and we also know that that must have meant they were extremely hated. You notice being a prophet is not a particularly popular job description in the Old Testament. It's very different to today's prophets, you might notice that too. If prophets are overwhelmingly popular with all the people, it's a good sign that you need to pay very close attention to what they are actually saying. The whole point of a prophet was to make people known when they are straying from the word of God in order to cause them to come back into the way of the word of God, yes? So this is one thing that you can use just to guide those things. That's a slight digression. I won't go into that anymore. But the two witnesses here prophesying in Jerusalem, you can imagine this, a daily reminder to the people of their own apostasy, a daily reminder, these two people preaching the true word of God, that they are in fact going after this counterfeit Messiah and they are following him. This must have been irritating to say the least for them. Verse 9. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Notice that phrase, like I was saying. These prophets were tormenting those, not just because of, their, because of what they were preaching. And we can still see that reaction slightly today, can't we? You know, think of when maybe a Christian MP stands up and brings the word of God in the House of Commons and people jeer on the other side. They hate it, don't they? This is the same sort of thing, but on a much larger scale that we have here. So we see now they are allowed to be killed and the result of the world, the world rejoices. And this gives you an idea of the spiritual state of the world at this time. The world rejoices, there is jubilation as their bodies are left there for all to see. Again, there's Jewish undertones to this. Likely that is an intentional, they leave them out intentionally because in the Jewish mindset, an unburied corpse is a sign that they were cursed. It's theological meaning to all of that going on there. And also, it's a trophy piece for this leader who has just killed them. We know that at some point, this man called the beast here, or the, this, this world leader, he starts off probably 
small. Some people do oppose him at first, and he has to take over. We'll look at that more as we go through. But there is something that happens that allows him to suddenly think, now I can worship, get people to worship me as God. Some dramatic thing that he had to do. This might be it. I'm not saying definitely, but this is one of those things that it says the world sees this, and they rejoice over it. So surely the man who did this is going to be like, wow, he was more powerful than these two, than these two prophets. That is a man, that's the man who God has raised up. We need, to, we need to worship him. And you can see how the deception works there. The only really protection you have against that is the word of God at this stage, I would say. But that is, I believe, what's going on here. Now, it says, those who dwell on the earth, verse 10, those who dwell on the earth, remember, throughout the book of Revelation, that is a technical phrase. It's referring to people who are not who basically are taking their stand against God. The earth dweller is someone who has rejected the Messiah at this point and is following after the beast. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice. So the world is, I mean, the world is pretty chaotic at this point, but at this stage we see them united by a mutual hatred for the people of God, and we see them united in celebration now of the fact that these people have been killed. They applaud the beast. They give gifts to one another. They are so thankful that these prophets are gone. Now let me pause for a minute here to really sum up what we have here. I understand this is quite unusual stuff to be reading and studying about, but it is also fascinating in many ways. Sin is reaching its height in this end period now. Remember, the, the restrainer, as we talked about it, the removal of the Holy Spirit in the church from this earth, has allowed sin to come to the front, allowed this... Satan to have his last attempt, basically, at taking over the earth. And this is future. But remember the Apostle John said, the spirit of Antichrist is with us even today. So we, can still, we should be able to look around the world and see things that, although they're not the direct fulfillment, they point us in the same direction. We can see this spirit at work. It is a spirit that ultimately stand, stands against God, his word, and his people. And I could find many examples. I'm just going to give you a few here that relate in some ways to this issue that we're reading about here. So what we're actually dealing with here in Revelation that we've just read, Revelation 11, is really a quasi-religious dispute on the Temple Mount. <laughs> if you think about it, if you want to simplify it in the simplest terms, it's a religious dispute regarding the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that should not surprise us today. I don't know if you've been following the news. <laughs> the last few days, we've had religious disputes and riots on the Temple Mount, of course, involving a particular religion and another religion. And now I'm not saying that that's going to be the same in these times. The geopolitical situation will probably be radically different in the tribulation. But it's the spirit behind these things that I want us to look at. And we should also be quite amazed by the fact that Revelation was written in the first century. First century AD, whilst Jerusalem lay in rubble, it was no longer an important city, it was destroyed. But yet, John the Apostle knew that he was going to write this. And 2,000 years later, we see that he was absolutely right. This area that had no reason to be a contested area still, after it had been destroyed, is still an issue. And that, again, tells us the, the authority of the Bible is absolute in these areas. But what we're seeing here... This was just, again, there's riots going on on the Temple Mount and some of the interesting things about this is if you've watched a few videos of them, as I have, you'll notice that they are chanting, there's lots of different chants, but one of them is a 7th century battle cry that the early Muslim forces used to use when they were purging the cities of Jews back in the 7th, 7th and 8th centuries. And the idea is, 
It's about Jew. It's about being Jewish on the Temple Mount. And again, we, it's not about being Jewish, actually. I want you to see behind that. It's about God's covenant. And what does Satan always want to do? He wants to try and break God's covenant. This is, this is the whole battle going on behind the scenes here, of which we are just seeing play out in physical ways. But without spiritual eyes, you won't be able to see behind the curtain and see what is going on here. I want you, Revelation gives us those eyes in many ways. Going up on the Temple Mount has caused wars in the past. Just recently, we had wars, 11-day war, when there was riots on the Temple Mount. Second Intifada, 2005, Israeli Prime Minister took a walk on the Temple Mount, and it led to years of war. This is just how volatile this area is. And what about giving gifts? We see, we just read, these prophets are killed up on, the te- up on this area of the temple, and then the world celebrates and gives gifts. This, again, should not surprise us. It's long been the custom in the ancient Near East that when someone wins a great victory and they become the power on the block, all the surrounding vassal states who are not as powerful, one thing they will do immediately is suddenly say, right, send a delegation over, shower him with gifts and praise, make sure he knows that we're on his team. That happened in the ancient world, and it still happens in many sort of similar ways today. Just recently, remember we saw the debacle in Afghanistan with the Americans pulling out. So this is an article from The Economist. You probably can't read I'll read the first paragraph there. It says, in Yemen, they set off fireworks. In Somalia, they handed out sweets. And in Syria, they praised the Taliban for providing this living example of how to bring down a criminal regime. Now, ignoring the, the politics and everything involved, it's this concept that I want to see of celebrating victories like this. You see it often when there's terror attacks in the streets of Jerusalem. It's very common for bakeries in certain districts to sell candy, to take candy out, distribute, distribute it on the streets, and celebrate, basically. That is the idea. And, of course, a lot of this now is done for social media in order to, as a tool for getting new, you know, there's a lot of theatre involved in these things. But the concept goes right back to the ancient Near East. Do you remember when the World Trade Centres come down? If you do remember that, you'll notice there was celebrating in certain parts of the world every year. In fact, even in London, we have celebrations every year of these sorts of things. Now, again, I'm not looking to kind of talk about religions and and demonize any people involved in that sense. I want us to see behind that these things that the Apostle John spoke about in the first century are still relevant and happening in that same spirit today. And one day that gives us good cause to think that he knew what he was talking about. And one day we will see them play out in this final way that we've just read about with the two witnesses in Revelation. Now, let's talk a little bit again about the temple too. Because the temple is a fascinating concept. Now again, just by way of caveat, I'm not saying that these events that I'm showing you here are what Revelation is talking about. Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this is that. Like I said, I'm just showing you the spirit behind it, which we shouldn't be surprised to see. The geopolitical situation, whether Islam's involved, these things might be completely different by the time that the beast is risen and we're here. I do not know that. But I do know that these are the areas that are going to be involved. So the temple... Let's talk about that again. This just came, actually, I just joined this organization to get their newsletters recently. It came into my inbox because I obviously follow a lot of these sorts of things and you get spammed with this stuff. This is a new organization called the Temple Project. And this is their idea. They're obviously gaining resources to do this. Join for free to build the third temple in Jerusalem. Now, 
of course, there's a few people that have tried to do that. There's a whole thing called the Temple Institute in Israel that is preparing the priesthood and all that sort of stuff. Everyone's been talking about that for a long time. I don't want to go into it. This is actually a new one that, it, that has popped up, and it, it's, it seems pretty savvy in the way that they're, they're doing this. Their goal is to reach 1 million subscribers by 2025. But what I want to point out is some of the specifics about this is the desire of the world to build a temple in Jerusalem. Okay, I'm not saying this is, this is a God desire. What I, I want you to see the deception behind all of this. Listen to some of this stuff from their website. 500,000 of these subscribers being Israelis of all religions of any obedience. And then look what it says. You probably can't see that, but I'll, I'll read it to you. We can then resolve the social and environmental wrongs and ensure accessibility to health to everyone. The addition of these elements will result in a solution to all conflicts and subsequently bring about world peace. This is like, as, as we get into the end of Revelation, you're going to see a convergence of culture, secularism, economics, with quasi-religious motivations through this man called the false prophets, with that desire to set up this kingdom. Most, as we've studied at the beginning of this book, most empires and people always want to set up a kingdom. And one thing you'll always notice, it's world peace that is given as the, the ideal for that. And one thing you'll always notice is that Jesus Christ is never mentioned in these things. It's a kingdom without the king. And we see here again for this. Now this is again fascinating. Let me just read to you a little bit more to it. It says, the third temple will concentrate the prayers of all people at one location. The concept of a synagogue, mosque, or church will be obsolete. It does not matter whether one prays sitting, standing, or kneeling. The time has come to build the third temple of Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in accordance with the prophecy of Ezekiel. Now, I find this fascinating, because if you read the prophecies of Ezekiel, they're referencing chapters 40 to 48, where we get this, this building, this millennial temple, you'll notice one very specific thing. It is the Messiah who builds that temple. And the judgment has already happened by that point, and that is the temple where he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. But here we see what happens when man wants to try and build his kingdom without the Messiah, bring everyone together. We just need a place that we can focus our worship. Is it any wonder that this man that we're calling the beast, this false Messiah, sees this temple and says, I need to go into that temple and proclaim myself as God and all will worship me? All of these things are fitting together, yet... They don't really see it, but we can see it through the book of Revelation with what is happening. I just find that fascinating and quite scary in some ways. But not scary for us, obviously. But let's look at, let's carry on, verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And then they went up into heaven on the cloud, in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now we see these two witnesses are miraculously resurrected. They've been supernaturally protected through their ministry. Now they've been killed. The world has rejoiced. And can you imagine what the world does now that they are resurrected? So this is a, a very dramatic event here. The voice of God is heard, something that's not heard frequently throughout the Bible. There's a massive earthquake. These people who have been rejoicing are now watching helplessly. Now, before we 
come up with a spiritual interpretation. Many people, again, don't like to just accept what is written here. They try and explain the way the, the meaning. They say, we've already had the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why are we having more resurrections? This is ridiculous. Uh, again, just, just read the text. This, this, we've just read it. It very clearly says what it says. And let us remember, ours is a faith, unless we get too involved in this world. Ours is a faith that is based on a miraculous event. We've just studied this, haven't we? We just looked at it during the, the good holiday, the Easter weekend, rather. Resurrection is what our faith is founded upon. Without resurrection, it's all nothing. So it shouldn't surprise us that we see resurrection again being the sign. And there's a lot of theological significance that I want to try and open up to you quickly now in a few minutes, because you need to understand this. Resurrections are connected to the gospel, the period of the gospel when Jesus was here on this earth. Do you remember... He was rejected by the leaders of Israel. Matthew chapter 12, he did these miracles and the people came to the Pharisees and they said, is he the Messiah or is he not? And the Pharisees said, right, we need to make a decision. And they looked and they said, no, he's not the Messiah. He's doing these things by the power of Satan. Do you remember that episode in the Gospels? And from that moment, the ministry of Jesus changed. That was the national rejection of the Messiah. That was it. And then he started training his disciples and doing things for his disciples. Now, right after that, some of the Pharisees were like, well, because of that rejection, he said judgment's going to come on you. In 70 AD, you're going to be destroyed. The Romans are going to destroy Jerusalem. Some of the Pharisees were basically like, that seems a little harsh. Can you, you know, give us another sign to show that you're the Messiah, like he hadn't already given them lots of signs? And then he said these words. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah is the sign of resurrection. And it was a sign that would come to Israel three times, in fact. And each time it was supposed to bring either confirm the leader's rejection and bring those remnant who would believe in him to himself. The first time it came was the resurrection of Lazarus. In John 11, if you read that text, it, you'll notice some believe and follow the Lord because of that event, but most, taking the advice and leadership of the leadership of Israel, reject Messiah. They reject that first sign of Jonah. The second sign of Jonah, Christ's resurrection himself. And again, you read the narrative, Many believed, many still believe because of that, but the leadership of Israel nationally still rejected. They stood by their leader's decision and they rejected Jesus, and there's nowhere more that Jesus' resurrection is more fiercely opposed than in Israel today by Judaism, you see? So these are the things going on. That's the first two signs. The sign of Jonah will once again come to Israel, but this time it will lead to the repentance of Israel. This is actually what we're studying in the book of Revelation right now. The resurrection of the two witnesses is the final sign of, of Jonah, the final sign of resurrection to the nation of Israel. That's why these prophets have been prophesying around Jerusalem. And it's the final chance. And as we know, it's actually going to have, they're going to accept it this time. The Jewish people will start to turn back to God. And this, we shouldn't be surprised, even the Apostle Paul speaks of this. Romans 11, he says, there's a partial hardening on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But then he says, so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's the New Testament. These two witnesses 
are special, special servants of the deliverer, and they begin the process now of turning ungodliness away from Jacob. As we read in the text, the earth dwellers are fearful, but others give glory to God. These are the Jewish people now starting to actually listen finally to their prophets. This final sign of Jonah is starting to remove the blindness from Israel, and that means that we are so close to the kingdom at this stage. That's exactly where we are in the book of Revelation, which leads us on to this final section. Let's read it all in one go. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Do you remember the trumpet judgments were the, the woes? The last three were the woe judgments, so that's preparing us for the next stage of the book. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So now we almost get like an interlude where we're going to see, although it hasn't quite happened yet, this is basically what's just about to happen now that the, the Jewish people are hearing the words of the prophet and coming back to the Lord. The blindness is being removed. Soon the kingdom will be here. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, those who fear your name, the small and the great, and, do, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. So it's an amazing final scene that we see here. The final fulfillment of the ages. We're getting a little glimpse now to the end of the book of Revelation, if I could say it like that. The long-awaited kingdom is about to come. All of the corrupt earthly systems of this world have now been put down and they are gone and the glorious king is coming back to take his throne because he has the great power to do that. This is what we're seeing here. Everything that we're reading about, these weird, unusual judgments are preparing for this moment. The coming of the Messiah's kingdom is connected with the final overthrow of Satan and evil. This is it, basically. This is the time. The word, the word there, has become, uh, that, you re that you read, almost makes it sound like it's talking about it, you know, it's already happened. It's, it's a, I won't explain, but in the Greek, the tense of the verb is, is a way of explaining something with certainty that has not quite yet happened, if you see what I mean. So because it's a, a prophecy, you can speak about it like it's, he knows it's happening, John, the author here, even though chronologically we're still just a few steps away with the seventh trumpet and everything like that. That's what he's going on here. One last theological connection I want to make for you, and then we'll close. Again, I always love the way that Revelation links us back to the Old Testament. That's how I believe you understand it. Two things I want to highlight in this final section to you. You notice it says, his Christ, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Christ is Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one, yes? Christ and his anointed one. And then you'll notice in verse 18, it says, the nations were enraged. It's very reminiscent of a psalm that we have in Psalm chapter 2. The nations raged against the Lord and his anointed one. What is basically, this last whole section is showing us that this is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, that great messianic psalm. Let me read to you how it begins. Why are the nations in an uproar? Or why do the nations rage? And the peoples devise a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together 
together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ. This is the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 2. This is what Revelation is dealing with. We've just seen it. These earth dwellers taking their stand against the Lord and against his Christ. That's what's happening right now. goes on in Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Now he's speaking, the God Father is speaking to his anointed. And you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. It's speaking of this time when the Lord says to the Son, go and get your kingdom, and he comes back, and that's what we read in the book of Revelation. These are the contrasts that we see being built in the book of Revelation. Remember, we saw the world celebrating, praising the beast for killing these two witnesses. And now at the end of Revelation, we see the real praise happening in heaven. The faithful 24 elders falling on their faces, prostrating themselves before the Lord, giving honour to the true Lord, the eternal one, because his great power has come and now he has begun to reign. The beast and Satan, they're thrown, they're destroyed, they're thrown, they cannot stand against the Lord when he comes for his kingdom. And then finally we see that heavenly throne room, the ark of God, which is the throne of God up in heaven. We see that opened up, which speaks of his law, his presence and his authority to judge Notice again the contrast being built for us. This temple that man built, that Satan's counterfeit Messiah thought that he could get worship from, be worshipped as God on this earth. The delusions of grandeur that must have been involved in Satan's mind, how deceptive sin is, that he thought that could possibly compare to the kingdom of our Lord, who would bring down from heaven the new Jerusalem, his actual throne room, and he comes down and he has his anointed one, his Christ, who will rule from Jerusalem but it will not be in a temple built by man's hands like that. This is what we see happening here. Everything that is counterfeit will be exposed by the light of the glory of the true heavenly temple and the sun that sits upon the throne. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.